0: Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Katrina Matthews, and I'm Managing Editor at Continued Social Work. Today's podcast features our host,
1: Dr. Ben Bencomo, discussing identifying and treating gambling disorder with our guest, Heather Mosher. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you, Katrina. Hello and welcome everyone to the Continued Social Work podcast. I'm excited to welcome our guest today. Today joining us is Heather Mosier. Uh, Heather Mosier is a private practice, is in private practice, excuse me, providing psychotherapy to individuals in the state of Pennsylvania. Heather provides consultation to agencies on policy and clinical outcome measures provides training through various arenas and is a team member of the Pennsylvania department of drug and alcohol program, medication, death and incident review team. As a part of this team, she helps to review medication related deaths, communicate concerns and develop best practices to prevent future medication related deaths and incidents. Heather has over two decades of experience in administration, in clinical practice, clinical supervision, and leadership within organizations serving groups and individuals living with substance use disorders, gambling disorders, and co-occurring conditions. Heather holds a master's degree in business and public administration and social work, and an undergraduate degree in human services, an associate's degree in criminal justice and psychology, is a certified alcohol and drug counselor, holds a Certificate of Competency in Problem Gambling, and is an EMDR therapist. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Heather, I ask this of all of our guests, but I'm always very interested in how social work found you. How do, what was your path to social work and, and what, uh, what helped you to determine that this was the right profession for you?
1: Well, the honest answer is I went to school, um, it started out in criminal justice. I took a couple of classes there and eventually ended up thinking, oh, I want to be a special education teacher through special education. (laughs) I then said, Hmm, I think I want to work with the parents. And that is the whole full circle of, of how I got where I was. And, um, it was a wonderful path right sometimes we think that we're going to go down one path and it leads us to something else and we find where we really need to be
0: absolutely absolutely that's a conversation i often have with students as well is you know sometimes we're just where we're meant to be i think and we just end up finding passions that we never knew we had and ways to help and uh things that that really had never crossed our mind before well i'm glad the path led you to the work that you're doing um heather if you could can you share a little bit about your practice experience your social work practice experience and then about how you first became interested in working in the area of gambling and gambling addiction
1: yeah so um Full disclosure: Since my camera is on, I picked up a foster puppy today. So what you're hearing um, is that background. So I apologize to all of our listeners that you're you're hearing all this extra things going on today. So practice. I started off really working in addictions, and I felt like, you know, this was a place where we could meet. All clients, all different kinds of clients, people who have subpopulations. And what I found was I was really motivated to work with the individual and try to like treat the entire person. And sometimes what we find, depending on what state we're in, depending on what regulations are going on, maybe we can only treat mental health, but that person also has a substance use disorder in certain states and certain different regulations would separate them. And what I really became interested in is that entire person. So throughout working in substance abuse, what what I found was the missing link in some areas. What I mean by the missing link is I was missing some questions. I thought I was doing a thorough, thorough evaluation of clients. Um, And what I found out was that I was not. I was missing some questions. And those questions were related to gambling and gambling disorder. So one of the uh, funding sources that I had worked with had required that we ask certain questions. when we were doing our screening and assessment. And what we realized is when we started asking the question a little differently than what was actually on that piece of paper, we started getting more information and we started realizing more and more of the people that we were working with were gambling. Had we continued to ask the questions maybe in a different way, we might not have gotten that information. And as I started to realize we really had patients or people that, that had something that or had a disorder, um, had started walking down that path of gambling disorder, we realized that we had very few therapists that were skilled in treating gambling disorder. So I hope I answered your question there. That's a great question.
0: Absolutely, yes, you did. Um, now, one of the approaches that differentiate social work as an appre- as a profession from other helping professions is um, our attention to to the person in the environment. And so, in thinking about social elements, what would you say are um, what if any social elements contribute to a person's um,
1: a, a person's involvement in gambling activities? So that's a that's an awesome question. So what we do know is that our culture really does support these activities, right? Depending on where you live, you can walk into almost any convenience store, get a lottery ticket. Now, I will tell all of you after you take this training... You'll be in CVS or somewhere else and you'll end up taking someone's inventory. You'll think it's a Thursday and you've been there for five full minutes, right? But we can walk into a convenience store. We can walk into uh, a gas station. We can walk into various different places, get a lottery ticket. We go to a sports event. What happens at a sports event? There's 50-50. We go to a baby shower. There's There's actually, I think, 50-50 at baby showers. There's a lot of gambling that's within our culture, right? And we might even have that in our intimate relationship. I bet you 50 bucks (laughs) that um, it's going to rain today. And maybe you're just yanking somebody's chain and you really aren't going to play $50 on whatever it is. But it's really embedded there. You know, we can attend an event at a casino. We can also download an app on our phone. And maybe this app is not requiring money of us, but it might also still be within that realm of gambling. And then we have all of the other things the cultural aspects, the office betting pools, March Madness which really someone had told me once that March Madness is truly about you're completely mad because it's an entire month full of just nonstop basketball, right? So there's betting going on there. There's also a lot of social activity around fantasy, fantasy football. So what annoys me the most about fantasy football is I usually have to work my work schedule around fantasy football because people will say, "Oh, well, you know, our fantasy football night is Monday." <laughs> right, but you don't and you think you maybe you participate in one fantasy football league. No, some people participate in three or four. So it's a very very culturally defined participation and sometimes we don't even realize we're gambling when we're gambling mm-hmm.
0: it's so ingrained in so many aspects of just our interactions with others i know that as we're recording this podcast the world cup is going on and about an hour ago i was texting a friend of mine about world cup and 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 one of the responses was, you know, I bet that this is going to be the outcome of the final World Cup match. So uh, I can definitely attest to the fact that it's just, it's a part of so many interactions that we have. Yeah. On a daily it basis. Is. Um, and
1: you just don't even realize it until it's happening. Like I didn't realize that. I didn't even think about when I went to a school sport or to church or to uh, the community center that I was actually gambling, you know, or how much that has a cultural influence in all different aspects of life, you know, so it, it, we sometimes think about it being older generations, you know, everybody's getting on the bus and they're going to Atlantic City, but it's so much more. It it's it's it it crosses all cultural boundaries right. and ages.
0: Right. Now, I know that within the profession of social work and in helping professions and in looking back at um, the history of the DSM as well, there has been uh, quite a bit of back and forth in terms of how people look at gambling overall. So I'm interested, Heather, how would you define gambling disorder? And is there a difference between gambling disorder, pathological gambling, or problem gambling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. A great question. So the interest in gambling is really quite recent. And when we say recent, we think about how long social work has been going on. And it's really been in the last 40 years that we have really begun to look and allow gambling disorder to take shape and our treatment and how do we work through those processes. So this may seem like a large bit of time, but it really isn't. So it wasn't really until like the 1980s that gambling was really recognized as a disorder by APA. So our knowledge has grown, but what I would say is we're still really in the adolescent stage of attending to gambling disorder. So gambling disorder is a progressive, persistent, and reoccurring problematic gambling behavior that leads to clinically significant impairment or distress. And that's indicated by an individual um, exhibiting four, so we're looking at the DSM as it is right now, four or more of the diagnostic criteria within a 12-month period. So when I start looking at that, I want to look at gambling disorder in itself in those criteria. So when we look at that, it it really does look very similar to maybe some substance use disorders. It includes preoccupation, tolerance, withdrawal, escape, chasing, lying, loss of control, risk relationships, and bailed out. <clears throat> Problem gambling, very different from gambling disorder is any gambling that causes a family uh, or causes family, financial, emotional, or other problems for the individual, their family, and their peers. So now when we think about that again, we start to think about, well, maybe the individual doesn't feel that they're affected by their problem gambling, but their cousin is saying, we used to spend a lot of time together. And as a result of this extracurricular activity, it's really becoming a problem for me how much time you're doing this. Or maybe you have been at dinner with someone and they're on their phone right so they're spending this time on their phone you're saying it's really a problem for me that we're not able to talk while we're sitting right here in front of each other because you're on your phone and maybe you think they're texting or doing something else but perhaps they could be gambling so it doesn't just have to be affecting the individual it could affect others and as we know Oftentimes, when we're affected by something, other people see us and they feel what's going on with us, or maybe it really truly is something that's interfering with our relationship with the individual. So, pathological gambling was added to the DSM 3 in 1980, and mostly due to the work of Dr. Robert Custer. And when I first started doing, getting my supervision for this license, um, this very well, he he was our supervisor and we'd be on these big calls and I couldn't wait until the new person would come in each time. So they'd come in and he'd ask, you know, their name and then he'd say, do you know who this is? Dr. Robert Custer? If you don't, you need to look it up and you need to know everything that there is to know about him. So, Dr. Robert Custer really did a lot of influential work for us. And he was known as the problem gambling pioneer. He identified three separate phases. Winning, losing, and desperation. So, In this edition of the DSM, pathological gambling was classified as an impulse control disorder. So think about that. All the things that we had in the DSM-3, or take your mind back to that place, that it was really under impulse control disorder. So in the next edition, that criteria... Was revised to reflect the similarity between substance dependency with the additional language of repeated unsuccessful attempts to control, cut back, or stop gambling. So I'm going to read that again that they added additional language that said repeated unsuccessful attempts to control, cut back, or stop gambling. So since that time, there has been many, many, many revisions of that criteria and terminology. What's really cool is our DSM-5 work group. So I really enjoy looking at how those revisions keep taking place, right? We're rolling that ball in and we're really starting to form a mold. Remember, like I said, I really feel like we're in that adolescent phase. We're really just trying to figure some things out. So in the work group, we moved pathological gambling to a new classification under substance use related and addictive disorders. And we renamed pathological gambling to gambling disorder. And we all said, yay. (laughs) Because the word right? Who wants to be a pathological gambler?
0: Right. And, and, and so we talk about that stigma, right? That idea that, that's tied to the language that we learn, that the language that we use. And so that shift from pathological gambling to now gambling disorder, I think, um, or, or actually I'll ask you, in your opinion, how has that shifted the, the stigma related to people who are struggling with their gambling?
1: So I think it's done a great deal for us. There's still stigma that that exists, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but when we take the word pathological, right, not only does maybe it suggest something to us as the social workers, even though we don't want to be biased, right, we're all here because we want to help people and we have that heart of gold that we just want to help everyone and do everything, but we all have biases. We just do. So when we hear that word, that starts to shape our mind about what this is. Also, it shapes other people's minds about what gambling disorder is. So that shift really started to make the initial stages of change that we needed to move in the right direction where we start to think about this disorder like we do other disorders. So maybe depression has moved mountains in in many, many, many years, and it doesn't have that same, same stigmatization.
0: Right. And I'm, I appreciate you bringing this up and talking about bias. I wholeheartedly agree. I often tell my students, if you ever meet a, a bias-free social worker, either they're not self-aware or they're just full of it because we don't exist. <laughs>
1: Amen. <laughs> we don't
0: exist. So in, in thinking about that, let's talk a little bit about implicit bias, if you don't mind. And is there implicit bias in this field um, when we talk about mental health care um, in reference to gambling?
1: Absolutely. So like you said, and thank you for saying it. So some people will say, Oh, no, I'm not biased. Yes, we are. We all are. And it's absolutely normal. Now, some of what I'm going to say, please don't quote me on it. I think we, we, we process like 11 million or 1 million. And again, I'm, it's one or the other bits of information, all at one time, right? So our brain says, Holy crap. <laughs> Imagine if you were typing 11 million words a minute, right? Your computer can't keep up. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but whoever's listening, think about how when you really go to town on your computer and you look up and the the Word document hasn't caught up with <laughs> with the speed. Your brain is exactly the same way. It really has to like sort and it has to understand all of this information at the same time. And it's really a means of survival for our brain. It just cannot process all that information. So at some point it says, hey, these two things are like, that doesn't make sense. And it's like that memory game I don't know if they still have it or you can buy it. Remember, you'd flip one over and you you would look for the frog and the frog. There was many different like lines there. And oh, these two are the same. The brain does the exact same thing. And it, it does that because it says same and differences are easier for me. So the brain's also saying stereotyping is easier. So let's think about Perhaps a clinician who has uh, 35 clients on their caseload and they have 40 DAP notes that they need to finish or soap notes, whatever it is. Okay. Also, they have twins that are five and they have um, maybe a parent who is critically ill. All this stress is going on all at the same time. So, the brain is saying, I have a really difficult time doing things right now. I'm under pressure. It's hard for me to assess accurately. And oftentimes, that's what happens with the bias that comes into healthcare, right? We know that there's the implicit bias, the one we're not aware of, and then there's that explicit bias, the bias that we have, you know, we are aware of. So, think about it sort of like this when when we're getting puppy bites. when we look at those explicit biases, those are the ones that are conscious. you know we as individuals were fully aware of our attitude and behavior and maybe what we say is all people who gamble neglect their family. Now, the individual who made the statement is aware of what they believe, and their attitudes towards individuals who gamble. But again, the individual belief can also be reflected in their work as administrator of a behavioral health clinic, and that might lead to different outcomes. It might lead to a policy that they develop based on the lens in which they see people who gamble. And then this can perpetuate sometimes an overdiagnosis or an incorrect, incorrect screening and assessment, right? So I might see that he has two lottery tickets or she has two lottery tickets in her purse and assume because there's two lottery tickets, they need additional screening. And maybe I'm asking questions in a leading way that would lead to an incorrect diagnosis. And there's many, many other things that we can think about. There's those implicit biases that leads us to doing things on that subconscious level or an unconscious level that really does affect our attitude and behavior. So what you said earlier really just does make sense. We have these biases because our brain does it. There's some that we're aware of. There's some that we're not. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to start to talk a little bit about some of those larger contexts of how that actually affects um, the people that we work with, those biases.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So the, the second piece of that conversation I have with students is... Um, it's it's not about being completely bias free or striving to that it's about self-awareness and being aware of our biases and and making sure that they are not impacting our work with our clients in that way so absolutely heather um what would you say what do you believe some of the biggest misconceptions among social workers are regarding people who are living with gambling disorder
1: it's a great question so one of the things that i hear uh, often as problem gambling is easy to recognize and diagnose, but it's not. So problem gambling can be hidden. And I'm going to give you an example. So for example, Sarah is the head of IT at a large bank, and she's always on her computer or phone, which, you know, in today's world, a lot of people are. Her wife, Megan, does not worry about the time she's spending on her phone because it's truly normal for her. Yet, Sarah's really been gambling through those use of apps and other means. Throughout Sarah and Megan's relationship, they decided at some point what they wanted to do is they wanted to do some infertility treatment. And as they did that, they were referred to an individual. It's a third-party fertility counselor for a psychosocial right and they're doing this consultation and they're doing the psychological testing but olga missed all of the information that was there for her it it was there it was it was in order for her there were different signs that she missed and had perhaps she had asked those two short questions that may have led to that first assessment that says I need further assessment from here. So we think that it's easy to diagnose, but it's not. So there, there was no money that was missing within that family. There was mostly time spent on the phone, but that was normal for that individual. So it, it's not as easy as it seems to, to diagnose, the second that I would say is that oftentimes I I hear people say this is an adult disorder, but it's not. It's a disorder that rampages all over ages. So what we do know is that when we talk about gambling, we need to consider teens and adolescents. Sometimes it's, it's as though we, we say there's a legal age for for gambling, right? So there's a legal age, so I don't have to worry about my seven-year-old. Okay, well, there's a legal age for drinking, too. <laughs> and, you know, other substances are not legal, so we really do need to be concerned about our teens and adolescents. Uh, problem gambling, Gambling is a much larger problem with teens than adults, and when most people think of addiction or talk about addiction, they're thinking about drug addiction, you know, not gambling disorder, gaming disorder, or internet disorder. So I think it's really important for me just to let you know that 10 to 15% of of kids are at risk for developing a severe gambling problem. And and that's pretty scary. Ten to fifteen percent. That's that's a lot of our kiddos that maybe we thought were doing wonderful. And you know, maybe they're more quiet and you know, praise praise it all. You know, this child is not using substances and seems overall healthy, but maybe we missed something along the way. There was a survey that was conducted in 2017 in Pennsylvania where they surveyed, oh, I think it was like a thousand schools and they got roughly 200 surveys back. And those surveys coming back said 11% of our kiddos table games. 21% bought lottery tickets. 13% were participating in sports betting. 17% in video games. And 11% said that they were gambling in some other way. Right? And we think, well, yeah, you can't do that because you're not old enough. But again, remember, and this is the hard part, remember that Alcohol also is only to be consumed if you're 21 years of age and older in the United States. And, and it's the same as gambling. We can get a hold of things that maybe we shouldn't. I had two other quick ones that I wanted to say um, that I find that sometimes, um, you know, there's this huge misconception that people who gamble will always have financial problems. It's not true. Um, people living with gambling disorder will not always have financial problems. Well, it can cause people to lose their money and it may have some desperate financial situations and, and sometimes we will have people rely on others to help them get out. It's not a requirement for a diagnosis. In order to meet that gambling disorder criteria, you only have to meet four of those. So one may be that there's some desperate financial thing going on, but it doesn't always have to be that. Sometimes gamblers aren't even playing for the money. They play it because it boosts the endorphins and it alleviates stress and it's an obsession you know the anticipation is so important just as the win is so the issue behind gambling is not always a financial one when we really look at it it's those changes within the brain the last one I have to say is that gamblers are male no so like and again, the, it's not our faults that our brains are processing in this way. like most of the gamblers are male. When I tell you I have to move my work schedule for uh, fantasy football, it's not for the men. It's for people who use pronouns she, her, sometimes it, sometimes they. But mostly people who identify as women, are the ones that I have to move my schedule around for. Interesting, right? So we think it's very much male, but things have changed. And we have noticed that a lot of that misconception is that they don't bet on sports and that, you know, this activity is for mostly men and You know, that cultural narrative does put many gambling, marketing, material, and popular sports betting, and there's movies and there's all kinds of things that's around male activity, but a reality is that a large portion of sports bettors are women. And I, before this segment, sometime yesterday, I looked up to see if I could find some new information and, and new statistics, and they do vary, but Basically, what I the most reliable information I found said that sports betting by gender is forty three percent women and fifty seven percent men. And there's some new podcasts and there's new uh, websites and there's all kinds of things that are out there for more than just men. They focus specifically on you know a, a, another gender.
0: That is so interesting and surprising. And because we do have this narrative, I think that this socially constructed narrative that we all buy into of who the problem gambler is. And so people who are struggling with problem gambling, who are outside of that narrative, I, it, it may affect how they see their own gambling as well, in addition to what services are are made available to them. That is, that's really interesting. Um, I do want to ask you if you have any other statistics um, to share, but before we do that, I know that, um, that there's quite a few buzzwords that have, that that people talk about when they're talking about um, problem gambling. I, I wonder, would you be able to explain um, what is this buzzword? Buzz excuse me, problematic play, and what what does that word mean when people use that um, in this in the context of this of gambling addictions?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> buzzwords do change, right? <laughs> problematic play is. You know, really, video games in the gaming world. And keep in mind that sometimes with buzzwords, they do have different meanings and different definitions for different people. So, for me, problematic play refers to problematic gaming, and that would be very similar to when I talked about problematic gambling. Problematic gaming is is really ve- very similar. So. These can be video games that are linked to creative problem solving and thinking, and also gaming. Gaming increases like an individual's interactivity, and it also creates an environment for the individual to increase social connections. And when we think about some things that have happened over the last couple of years, right, our social connections really did need to go up during COVID. So, What we did see was that really a a much larger increase even for adults to start going into gaming, right? We're going to all hang out with each other. So I'm going to go hang out. And we all went and hang out, but hanging out wasn't the same as it was before. So, you know, gaming really does increase social interactions and connections for a lot of people. So it can be a positive outlet and or positive soap or positive coping skill. What I think might be important to highlight is the negative interactivity in the gaming world. This really could be an entire podcast on its own, so I'll try to keep some of this information brief. So for this forum, I think it's important for me to highlight how some gaming leads to problematic gambling and or gambling disorder. One aspect is what we call loot boxes. So you may be familiar with them, you may not. Loot boxes are a common way to encourage in-game spending. They are mystery contents of a game paid with real money. Loot boxes are basically a virtual treasure treasure chest. So what they do is they contain items that will help us like cross that barrier it'll get us to this next thing so and you know they come up and they're all they're really exciting looking they're like I don't know sometimes they have rainbow colors sometimes they're bursting with gold sometimes they have all different things but you buy these and it helps you get what you want this also helps us affect the outcome of the game so the more tools i have in my toolbox to get where i need to go i can i can either increase my winning status or my avatar starts looking really cool so they have been the the loot boxes overall have been linked to problem gambling because those techniques are really just nudging and nudging and nudging players to keep spending money and this creates a problem for the individual who is buying and opening boxes they're paying for them and sometimes it creates that bailout for parents so we talked about bailout under gambling this does happen with these loot boxes so one of my friends said to me (laughs) that their grandson got a hold of some loot boxes He's only four, and $300 later, yes, $300 later, right? So it's not that a four-year-old could really grasp the concept of what he was spending. But grandma had to bail him out, so to speak, because the last time I checked, the four-year-old couldn't get a job and pay for his loot boxes. So we don't right now have an exclusion program for children or problem gamers. Um, They can purchase this over and over and over again. Right now the UK is considering if gambling laws should cover loot boxes and such conversations have started to be held in the United States, but they're not as substantial as UK. We're a little behind there. so there's definitely different terms that that we look at to describe excessive and detrimental use of, of video games. But essentially, problematic play becomes problematic when it it really just disrupts the ability to fulfill uh, the social and personal responsibilities.
0: Wow, that's that's Incredible, um, and thank you for thank you so much for clarifying that for us. I I wonder you've been doing this this type of work for a while now. I wonder if the fact that people more and more um, with advances in technology and definitely with the COVID-19 pandemic, people more and more are are living their lives online and living virtually. And I wonder, in your work, how how have you seen that translated into into access to gambling and into the progression of gambling disorders?
1: Well, it has definitely increased because we have more access to it. So think about Well, I don't know what state all of you are in. So pre maybe 2016, I'm terrible with years, but we used to only be able to get liquor in Pennsylvania at the liquor store or beer and soda distributor. Now I can get it 7-Eleven, sheets, you know, a lot of other states you could pick it up wherever, but in Pennsylvania you couldn't. So the liquor store, I remember correctly, closed at like 8 o'clock but like sheets, closes, never. So we had more access to it. So now that we have apps, we have more access. We have apps, we have more games, we connect with one another through different activities that are gaming and gambling. We have more and more access and the more and more access we have and the more and more we click, the more and more you're going to see disorders increase. And at some point, I think, you know, we do have different places that will say, um, so when gambling, um, the casinos came to Pennsylvania, what our state did was say, okay, fine, you can come, but X amount of proceeds need to come to our state so that we can do gambling treatment. And they've done a wonderful job at collecting that type of money and in fact, through that money, that's how you got me into gambling, right? Because they were really pushing therapists to get on board, get educated, start understanding what it looks like. It's not just that idea that maybe we once had that was just, you know, gamblers go to the casino, No, gamblers have it on their phone. Gamblers, you know, wager their bet at work. Now we have just so much more access because we can gamble on things that are in another country. We can game with people that are in another country. We can go and watch gaming itself and we can bet on that. So there's so much more access I hope I answered that question.
0: Yes, you did. Thank you for that. Um, In thinking about that, and thinking about the um, overall impact and extent of gambling, do you have any additional statistics um, that you'd be willing to share with us and with our listeners that might might help give us an idea of the scope of gambling disorder?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important to know that you know while most people choose to gamble and game. They do it responsibly. Estimates in, indicate approximately one to three percent of the U.S. adult population are living with gambling-related problems. So to quantify this, that represents about five million people in the U.S. And in the state of Pennsylvania, that's 300,000. Don't ask me how many people live in Pennsylvania. I don't know. <laughs> it's certainly uh, a lot more than 300,000. But when you think about that, okay, maybe I didn't think that number was that large. So 5 million people in the United States and 300,000 in Pennsylvania, that's a lot. The National Survey on Gambling Attitudes and Gambling Experiences was created by the National Council on Problem gambling, and it identified a significant increase in problematic gambling activity from 2018 to 2021. So we won't get our 2022 data until sometime in 2023. But the total of iGaming revenue in 2019 was 33.5 million, and in 2021 was 1. 1 billion It's a lot of money it's <laughs> a lot of money. Sports revenue in 2019 was 1.5 billion and in 2021 was 6.5 billion.
0: Those numbers are staggering to think about and to think about just exponentially how quickly that increased over the course of just two years
1: right so people were bored. There was a song called Bored. I think it was called Bored, so I think about that. Every time I look at these numbers, they were bored. So maybe it was that that's what engaged them socially. It was something to do, and it really, really increased. Now, I'm sure we could find some other correlating factors what we know is that information there. We know that it's increased. I can't say specifically that that is because, you know, in that short of period of time, it was just about COVID. There could have been some other environmental influences. It could have been that the people that were gaming and were gambling, maybe they just all won the lottery and was putting it back in. There could be a lot of factors to influence that. Um. So the other thing I'm going to say is that you know beyond those uh, uh, small statistics, we have that we want to look again at that at risk group. So we have those sports betters, those that are playing daily fantasy sports, and then we have younger gamblers. So younger adults are at greater risk of problematic play than any other demographic. So I say that over and over again because those of you who are working with adults can have these conversations with your adults, so that they can have those conversations or sort of look for what their kids are doing. And those of you who are working with kids can say, you know what, I'm after this podcast, I'm definitely going to ask the two question lie bet that we'll go over in a little bit. Or hopefully go over in a little bit that will help us, like really assess our clients, you know, because this is is pretty scary. If our young people are at risk. It's very scary when our adults are too, but those young people are just as at risk. And gambling has the highest suicide rate of any addiction. So those individuals are are really, really disproportionately living with other co-occurring disorders. And what I know is that people living with depression are 40 to 60% more likely to develop a gambling problem. And people living with anxiety disorders are 41% more likely to develop a gambling disorder. Those with bipolar are two times more likely to develop problem gambling. And 75% of people with gambling disorder also have alcohol use disorder. 60% Sixty percent are nicotine dependent, and thirty-eight percent are living with another substance use disorder.
0: Wow, that's those those statistics really are eye-opening when we think about all those c- different co-occurring disorders and 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 how there's so much interplay in in terms of uh, people struggling with different types of addictions and gambling addictions as well, um, Heather. Yeah, Heather. I'm wondering, um, could you share with our listeners a little bit about what are some of the short and long term impacts of gambling disorder on on an individual's overall well being?
1: Sure. So some some may seem like, oh, well, that might just be repetitive because that's what we see in so many other things. Or, "Hmm, duh, you know that 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 makes sense. But really, like when we start looking at it, it's it's poor health so think about how much time might be spent doing some some activities right and and maybe it's just in how we're sitting while we're doing it but overall we have these we have poor health outcomes and that also might be attributed to the stress as well there, as we talked about before, with the prevalence of the co-occurring disorders, there's a lot of depression and anxiety, and and some of those may be pre-existing, and some of those may be a result of because I I'm depressed because I uh, I didn't win and and I didn't achieve those goals, and or the anxiety might have something to do with, you know, um. I'm afraid of the outcomes, and and it really does lead to more poor health outcomes. There's that potential of drug and alcohol dependence. Then we have family arguments and high divorce rates. And in some cases, we may have legal conflicts, bankruptcy, job loss, unemployment. And I'm gonna say again and again and again suicide rate. So think about that suicide screenings and all of those things that we're doing with the safety plan. Really think about this because the individuals that we work with with gambling disorder, 60% report ideation and 20% attempt completing suicide. It's a pretty high rate
0: absolutely so in in thinking about that and thinking about trying to screen for some of these um, for some of these concerns are there screening tools or assessments that professionals can use to screen specifically for problem gambling or gambling disorder
1: yeah absolutely so there's i don't know i think there's about seven or eight of them and Again, because I'm in Pennsylvania, I'm going to say some Pennsylvania terms, but it will at least lead you to the right place. So the Council on Compulsive Gambling in Pennsylvania, if you just type that in your browser, you can click for professionals and all of the screenings are there for you. If you choose to use one or all of them in your practice or if you just want to look at them. So there's the brief screen. really short, two questions, right? It's called the lie bet. And this one, I do have to caution you. It's really just a screening for a screening. We're going to ask a couple of questions. And if we get a couple of answers that will lead us to, okay, we need to do a little bit more. um, And we're going to use some other assessments. There's one called Nods, and Nods is for adolescents and also for adults. There's an adolescent version of it, an adult version. There's the Brief Biosocial—I'm sorry—Brief Biosocial Gambling Screen. They call it BBGS. And then there's the South Oaks Gambling Screen. They call it SOGS. You'll hear it, it, you'll hear it more often if you take more gambling screenings. A lot of people use SOGs. Um, and then there is also, if you go to Gammonon or Gamblers Anonymous, they have 20 short questions that you personally can take and assess yourself. I think it's a really good idea for each individual who wants to use these to look at all of them and see what really helps you you know, when we're conducting interviews with people, we sometimes get overwhelmed, right? Like there's so many things to ask. Maybe just start with that two question and then say, okay, if I need to grab another assessment later, I'm going to grab another assessment later. So those are some of the screenings that you can utilize. And what a lot of these websites will do to help you then is just to say you know at the end this is this is what we think this is what we know this is just a short form and then we move into diagnostics and then treatment
0: that makes sense so in uh, we, we don't have too much time left Heather but I know that as a as a certified EMDR therapist and someone who's been working in this field um, for a while, are there certain types of treatment that are specifically indicated or have shown um, evidence based results for helping to support people in their recovery from a gambling addiction?
1: Absolutely. So again, remember, we're in our adolescent phase of, of trading gambling disorder. So there we have done research on cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, CBT, motivational interviewing. And when you start to do your own research for your own self, you'll see that all of them have um, they're all evidence based and they all do have successful outcomes. What we have been encouraged to do is that CBT. We know that it works and it replicates itself in other areas, but I heavily, 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 heavily encourage you to rem- put on your motivational interviewing hat. It is useful. For your kiddos, it's useful. For your adults, it's used for for elderly population. It is useful. Put on that MI hat every time you walk in the door. I want that to be your explicit bias. Walk in with motivational interviewing, that really helps get that motor started.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I second that. Earlier in my career, very early in my career, I was a, a certified MI trainer and I just found the, the the different skills involved in motivational interviewing were so widely applicable to many different areas of my clinical practice as well. So I, I second that recommendation, Heather. Um, earlier on, we were talking about implicit bias and explicit bias, even bias that's, that's socially sanctioned in a way by society. Um, Heather, what would your advice be to our listeners on what can we do to decrease stigma and bias when working with individuals who are living with problem gambling or a gambling disorder?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So think back to the statistics that we talked about earlier. sort of helps us understand that individuals living with gambling disorder also face like a compounding nature of stigma and the fact that many people are really living with multiple stigmatized identities. And one way we can start to eliminate what I call the stink is to increase our education on gambling disorder problem gambling and problem play along with co-occurring disorders. So, you know, maybe when we look at, you know how we have, there's three hours of ethics we have to take or maybe it's six, I can't remember one or the other, right? And then you have one in suicide and you have three in um, child abuse reporting. I think we could add one on addictions. One hour on addiction really to, to get that information and to understand how problem gambling, problem play, along with other co occurring disorders, really do affect the individuals that we're working with, either directly or indirectly. And through that education, we can start to think about our own explicit bias. And maybe perhaps think about how this bias shapes how we interact with others, with our clients, with our co-workers, and then we really can start to improve those attitudes and practices of practitioners and the other system stakeholders, you know focusing on that change of the individual and that cultural level of the organization and larger systems. And this can leads us or this can lead us to strengthen um, integration and coordination of care, positive outcomes, and long-term abstinence. Of course, this is really like only a marginal dent that we can do in reducing some of that stigma, but I think it's a really great place for us to start.
0: Absolutely. Heather, we are almost out of time. But before we uh, end today, um, if someone is interested in reaching out to find more information about how they can get treatment for a gambling disorder or problem gambling, um, what advice would you have for them?
1: So the the number I would suggest for everyone is 1-800-522-4700. This is the national hotline and it serves as a single access point to local resources for those seeking help for problem gambling. It is accessible 24-7 and is 100% confidential. If you prefer to text or chat, you can go to ncpgambling.org backslash chat, you can also reach out to Gamblers Anonymous or Gamanon, and that would be at www.gamtalk.org. But I really think the easiest thing is to do the 1-800 number or the text talk option. If you're specifically in Pennsylvania, if you're a Pennsylvania listener, it's 1-800-GAMBLER-PA.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Heather. I want to thank you for your time, for the work that you're doing, and for this important conversation today. Um, Thanks for being here, and thanks for for sharing uh, information related to your professional practice and all of your expert content knowledge related to working to support people with problem gambling and, and gambling addictions. Thank you so much for being here.